Let's begin with a passage from Luke 1. And this will really cool you off because it's a Christmas passage. <laughs> Churches I served, I used to have one Sunday in July that was Christmas in summer. So we'd sing Christmas hymns and we'd read the Christmas story and people would go, what? This guy has lost it. He's been out in the sun too long. Now, just a reminder that this story is a constant story for us. Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible for God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And with that, we end the reading of God's word. Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to his people. Well, we are in that section of the Apostles' Creed in the midst of the uh, Heidelberg Catechism dealing with our redemption. We have looked at the names uh, and titles of the Son of God, Jesus meaning Savior, Christ meaning the Anointed One, both uh, pre prophet, priest, and king, uh, Lord, meaning the one to whom you bow down and who rules over your life. Son of God, the only natural son, because he is eternally begotten. If you can figure out what exactly that means, eternally begotten from the Father. He wasn't created, he's not the second uh, or the first thing created. He is eternally begotten from the Father. He's the only natural child we are all adopted children, and we took some time to look at that. The context of this creed, the Apostles' Creed, helps us to understand why we are in a section such as we are. Because the creed was developed about 389 A.D., about 350, 60 years after Christ. And the church, for all those years, had not only been 
studying the scripture, but trying to think, who is this person called Jesus? What is he like? We know he is divine and he is also human, but what does that look like? And there were different, her at least what we call heresies now, different movements that brought up saying, well, obviously he couldn't be God because God couldn't become man. Uh, he only had the appearance of God. He was like a form. Or he only had the appearance of man. He was like a form. Or uh, he was a man whom God came upon in his baptism but left right before the crucifixion. Different heresies there. But they were always trying to figure out how do you put the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus together? How does this work? And so when they were writing this creed, they added in that section that we study today. Lord's Day 14. Question is, what is the meaning of conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that the eternal Son of God, who is and continues true and eternal God, took upon himself the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, so that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, except for sin. And then the second question, what benefits do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? And the answer is that he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin, wherein I was conceived. And in in talking about this and writing about this and dealing with this it's a mystery how someone can be truly God and truly man at the same time because we have no no paradigm for this we know what it is to be human we know the attributes of God but how do they fit together in fact this is what Grudem says makes it one of the most amazing profound miracles in the history of the world, it's even greater than the resurrection and the ascension. That is the incarnation of Christ. And that's what we're going to take a look at. But it's, there's also another aspect of this. This is, this is one of the greatest stories of humility you will ever discover in the Bible. The humility of the son, of Joseph, of Mary. And we're going to take a look at that as we go along. I appreciate Grudem because when he wants to start to, to try to show to us who Jesus and what, what the incarnation is like, he begins with his famous circle. And yes, that is a circle. I know it looks like an egg, but it is a circle where you have the Father you have the Holy Spirit, and then you have the Son. And this is the triune God. Then you have the person of Christ, and it's like this circle. Here, you have the divinity of Christ. Here, you have the humanity of Christ and there you have the person 
of Christ. Part of nature of God being fully God, fully man, or as we like to say in the Nicene Creed, truly God, truly man. God from God, God of God. And it is put together that way. So let's take a look at it. What's the meaning of the being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that the eternal Son of God, who is and continues true and eternal God, took upon himself the nature of man? And there are two aspects that the creed deals with. One is the divinity of Christ. You have a reference to John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word... The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you jump down to verse 14, and it says, The Word became flesh, God became flesh, and tabernacled among us. An image back to the wilderness, back to the temple, back to God being in the presence of his people through the cloud or through the pillar of fire. But he was in the midst of his people. Now there's something different. The same God has assumed flesh, taken on flesh, and now tabernacled, lived, walked, was within the people. Uh, you have the same thing. You know, John, we don't plan these things, but they sure do work well together. Back to Philippians 2. <laughs> this is probably the locus classicus. That is a classical location for the incarnation. This in Galatians 4.4. 4. Verse 8, chapter 2. He's talking about, uh, well, now let's go back. I have this mind in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, even uh, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You have Paul's looking at he, he was in the form of God. That means he had all the attributes of God. He was omniscient. He was omnipresent. He was omnipotent. He was eternal. No beginning, no end. He was infinite. Nothing could hold him back. It, you go through Towser's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and you look at all of those, and you'll see all of those exemplified in Jesus as attributes of God, there were also attributes of Jesus. But he emptied himself. That's the word gnosis. It is spelled just like knowledge. K-N-O-S-I-S. And there is a huge battle in, the in theology as to what exactly does that mean? He emptied himself. Does that say that when he took on the form of a human being, he forgot his deity. And the first thing you got to say, no, you can't. God cannot stop being God. He is eternal. That means he cannot stop being who he is. So he could not have emptied himself of his deity. It had to be with his humanity. 
But at the same time, what, of, of what did he empty himself? He emptied himself, and the word gnosis has to do with reputation. He no longer had the reputation that he had before in the sense that he's no longer in heaven, at least in, in one way. He emptied himself of the glory and the beauty and the praise that was his in heaven. Since the first creation, the first thing that God ever made, it had always praised him. And now, when he takes on the form of a human being, John in his first chapter said he came among men and men rejected him. The very individuals whom he had helped to conceive, whom he had held and helped to grow, the very individuals who owed their very life to him rejected him. He had no reputation. And in fact, if you look at the earthly ministry of Jesus, there were times when he was very popular and had a great following. But boy, you know, he, he began to speak the truth plainly and deeply. And all of a sudden, almost everybody left him. And he looks at his disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter, in one of his more brilliant moments of insight, says, Lord, to whom we would go, you have the words of eternal life. But basically, everybody left him. And yet he is the one who sustains him, who keeps them alive. The only reason that Pilate could take a breath is because Jesus. He also made himself nothing. That is, he left the dignity of heaven. He left what it was to be who he was. You want to talk about humility? That is humility. That's why Paul uses this example when he's talking to the Philippians. Humble yourself with one another. Consider each other more important than yourselves. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for you. He considered yourself. He had all the properties of deity, yet he jettisoned his deity in the sense of no longer existing purely in heaven and uh, no longer uh, doing what he had done with the Father, but in another way doing it. And consider what it cost him. He had to descend to our level. The example is sometimes given that Jesus descending to us is like us looking at an anthill that is in real trouble. And we becoming an ant, the super ant, ant-man. <laughs> and entering into that anthill to help them out. And then the ants turning around and saying, you don't belong here, get out. See, that's about what it's like. He descended to us. He humbled himself to the nature of a servant. And again, that word servant is a word bondservant. It's the lowest servant. It's the servant that had to clean your feet when you had been walking through a dusty, dirty, filthy street and you came into the house. This is the one that did all the horrible jobs in the household. This is what he took upon himself to be that kind of a servant. 
and he invaded our space in a whole new type of being. It's not that Jesus hadn't invaded before. We, we look at some of the times in which uh, the angel of the Lord, as the Old Testament put it, came and uh, lived with Old Testament characters. And the way they treat him is that they worship him, which no angel in and of himself would accept unless the angel happened to be God. And so you have Joshua coming face to face with an angel of the Lord and asking that question on the eve of a battle, are you for us or against us? You know, that's important. You want to know who this mighty character is. He said, neither. And if you were Joshua, he said, that was not the question. <laughs> is you for? No, the question is, the angel says, are you for me? Okay. That's a pre-incarnate time that Christ came into his being. But now, he sets it up permanently. Because now he takes on a human form that he cannot get rid of. He will always have that human form. And the two of them will be joined. And so the catechism is, and the creed is emphasizing the Savior's unity with the human race, and yet the Savior's difference with the human race. Remember it said he did everything, just he faced everything we did, except without sin. There it is. That brings us to the second side. That's the deity. Now you have the humanity. And it says that with the of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. Again, it's, it's somewhat of a reference back to Genesis 3.15 where God predicted that the, ser the serpent would bruise the heel of, one, of their son, of her son, and yet the son would crush the head. And that's an image that's taken up throughout the scriptures. And then you have Galatians 4.4 4, where it says... In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Born of a woman. In the fullness of time. When everything had come together, and we usually think, of, we sometimes think about that as it was just the right time. Greece had given a common language, Rome had given a common peace. But at the same time, there's a little, there's an even deeper meaning in that everything that God had been doing up until that moment came to this one crucial segment of time. When everything was progressing and the plan of God was unfolding to this particular aspect, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. The... Uh, Scriptures talk about this, and, and when Joseph marries betrothed, he has been told that she is pregnant. Now, imagine that for a minute. You're about ready to get married. You're in the process of putting together a home and everything, and all of a sudden your fiancé comes up to you and says, uh, Honey, I've got good news and bad news. The good news, the Messiah is coming. The bad news, I'm pregnant. 
Now, I don't know about you. I, uh, use your holy imagination. What would be your first reaction? It's not me. I didn't do it. What happened? Were you messing around with the best man? Sounds like a Hollywood movie, right? <laughs> Were you raped by the soldiers? Wow, did it happen? All of a sudden he knows that she's no longer a pure virgin. And he has to go out. He takes time to think about it. And while he's dreaming, I don't know whether he ran out, sat underneath a tree and fell asleep out of exhaustion or whether it was in the evening and he was having a dream. But in his dream, the uh, angel comes to him and says, no, 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 Joseph, don't be afraid to take your Mary as your wife because the child of her is of the Holy Spirit. And quotes Isaiah 7.14 where it talks about a young woman will give birth. That is, in other some translations, the idea of a virgin. That Even that idea has uh, seen some rough times. Back in the 50s, none of you would remember this, right? Well, maybe one or two. Back in the 50s, a, a version, a, an update of the King James kind of came out called the Revised Standard Version. And when they got to Isaiah 7.14, they translated it young woman because technically that is what the word means, a young woman. Well, a fundamentalist just had a field day with that. You see, this is a demonic translation. It is not of God. And they'd burn it. The progressives, the liberals, were going, yes, we knew it. You see, it's biologically impossible for a virgin to have a child, correct? Right? You, I mean, we know our biology. So therefore, Mary could not have had a child without having had some kind of relations with men, but that's the way progressives think. They live in a naturalistic, closed universe type thing that miracles don't happen. And therefore, this proves that the virgin birth is not a, a good doctrine. It's not true. And of the other part is, yeah, it's only mentioned a couple times. If it's only mentioned a couple times in the Bible, well, maybe it's not worth no noting or dealing with. Well, for evangelicals, back then evangelicals were really solid uh, students of the word. They said, I don't care how many times it's mentioned in the Bible. If it's mentioned once in the Bible, it's God's word and it's worth everything. The second of all, you have forgotten and you have twisted the person of God. If God is eternal and omnipotent, if God is, as the angels said to Mary, with with God, nothing is impossible. Again, limiting that to her becoming pregnant. If God, with him, nothing is impossible, he can do this without a problem. I mean, this is child's play for him. And so some of the early or later versions reverted, reverted back to virgin, which is a good translation of that word because the word yes means young woman, but it's a young maiden who hasn't been married. 
And back then, if you were not married, you were considered to be a virgin. And in fact, in that culture, in that society, if you were not a virgin, if you had had sex with a man, you were stoned. Try putting that one into law in our day and age, right? But that's why that young, the word young, vir young woman can be translated virgin. And that is where the material for Mary, for the, the humanity of Jesus came from, from Mary. It is by the operation of the Holy Spirit. This is the process by which it's been done. I put in your outline a quote from Westminster Confession of Faith when they deal with the same issue. Uh, chapter 8, section 2. Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is truly the eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father. In the fullness of time, I wonder where they got that language. In the fullness of time, he took on himself the nature of man with all the essential qualities and ordinary frailties of man except that he was sinless. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the virgin, out of her substance. These two complete, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in the one person of Jesus without being altered, disunited, or jumbled. The person Jesus is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And there you have some questions that arise. At least they do to me, but then I have a strange mind. Out of the one, out of the substance of Mary. Now you say, when you study the Bible, you think, you think of questions. And you think of questions that would come out of the incident. Out of the one substance of Mary. Mary's a woman. She's got an XX chromosome. Where in the world did the Y chromosome come to create a male? See, this, this is the way my mind works, I know. <laughs> Where did it come from? Well, it had to be Holy Spirit created a Y chromosome to put in the egg to create a male. Otherwise, you would have had this Strange-looking dude walking around Israel. A man, and yet looks exactly like a woman. With all the chromosomes of a woman. So this is what... The second question, when, when did it happen? Was it at that moment when the angel told Mary? Did it happen after the angel left? Was it that night? Was she, she was overpowered, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and he created a new life within her. Then the second, the other question is how long was it before she realized that he had done it? Usually when you become pregnant, you don't know at that, at that moment. You have to wait a while. When all of a sudden with the women, everything goes nuts. Because the hormones have changed. 
or you've lost your period and you've said, oh, oh, this looks good. And you kill the rabbit. So you find out whether or not, now, now you take little tests and you know whether it is. But it takes five, six weeks before you normally know that you're pregnant. You don't even realize it. You know, these are the things you think about. But then you also, the, what it does when you think about these things, it makes it even more stupendous. Natural reproduction, either the Y chromosome is there or not. Here, this God had to create a chromosome into the egg to make a baby boy. It is indeed a stupendous, mirac miraculous thing. Nothing like it has ever been done before or done after. It is unique in the true word sense of that word. And the two complete, perfect, instinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, are inseparably joined. Think about that. Joined, and then they have to, they're put together and they're inseparable. That is, his deity cannot leave his humanity, his humanity cannot leave his deity. They are there together forever. I mean, that's part of the humiliation or the humbling of Jesus. Eternal God joins himself with the frailties of humanity, except for sin. They are, without being altered, that is, his deity does not become humanity, his humanity does not become deity. They're different, they're, they're, uh, they, they keep their I identity. They are not disunited, dis disunited, they are cohesively put together, and one doesn't overshadow the other. And they are not jumbled. There's no confusion. They aren't commingled. Uh, the illustration I like with this is when Jesus was going across the lake and he was exhausted from his ministry and he went to the back of the boat and he laid down and he took a nap and a storm rose up. Now this, Jesus had to be exhausted. I mean, you, Riding on a boat can put you to sleep. But in a storm, it ought to wake you up. Because you're getting jostled all over the place. And this was not just a tiny little, well, two-foot waves. This were huge waves. They were coming in over the side. Seasoned fishermen were te pe uh, petrified, terrified about this. And yet he's back in the boat going, taking a nap. He, the, the lake water is coming over the stern and, and hitting him in the face, he's taking a nap. Why? He's human. He is absolutely exhausted. At the same time, when they wake him up, he gets up and all he does is say, Peace! Be still! <laughs> Immediate calm. The storm dissipates. The waves are gone. And that's his deity. At the same time as he was exhausted sitting in that stern of the boat, he is God who is creating the storm that is rocking the boat. But it is the God part that creates the storm. It's the human part that has him sleeping. <laughs>
they're the two put together. I mean, that's what makes Jesus so delightful, so, so delicious to get to know, and such a wonder in his ministry. And you kind of have to shake your head and say, why couldn't they see this? Why couldn't, other than the disciples, why couldn't people realize this is who he is? Well, there's a blindness that comes over our eyes that will not allow us to see Jesus until the blindness is taken away. That's the person. That's the two natures. Now imagine, go back to Joseph and Mary and note their humility. Mary in being willing to say, be it done to me as you desire. How unlike Sarah. This was pointed out to me this week. Sarah and Abraham hear the angel of the Lord, probably Jesus in a pre-incarnate state, say, one year from now, you're going to have a son. And Abraham goes, I'm, I'm 99 years old. And Sarah goes, I'm 89 years old. I'm way past that time. And she begins to laugh. And the angel says, you're laughing about it, aren't you, Sarah? She says, no, 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 I'm not laughing. Who wants to get caught by God? Okay. And that becomes their son's name, Isaac. Laughter. Or as I like to call him, laughing boy. Because that's, that was her response, laughter. Mary's response was, so be it. She humbles himself. And here you have a 14-year-old. Because that's about the time they got married. Imagine a 14-year-old you know now wanting and moving into marriage. A 14-year-old who says, okay. Joseph who says, I will not divorce her. I will take her. And the two of them bear the humiliation. They live in a small town. Have you ever lived in a small town? Everybody knows everything about everybody. You can't get away with a thing. Gossip mills run all, all the way around. And in a town where it was horrendous to become pregnant before you were married, all of a sudden they realize they're moving up the or they're yeah, moving up the wedding date or the, the two of the Mary is somehow pregnant. And you can just hear the ridicule. You can see the old ladies who sit down there at the cafe. Did you hear about Mary? Did you see her? It's like music man, you know. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and every time they walk by, people would look the other way. Why? Because they understood they were instruments of the Lord to do what he had planned to do from before the foundation of the world from all eternity. That is being humble. That is the second and third person story of humility. The creed then goes on to say, so that he might also be the true descendant of the seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, except for sin. 
And here it is talking about the genealogies of the gospel, both in uh, Luke 3 and Matthew 1, where both Mary and Joseph can link their heritage back to King David. And then, then they are talking about the covenant that God made with David, 2 Samuel 7, where David wants to build a house for God, and God turns around and says, no, I'm going to build a house from you from your seed, your descendant. Normally thought of as Solomon, but the covenant is not with somebody who is temporary. It will be with someone who is eternal. And therefore, it is a, it is a promise that there will come one whose heel may be bruised, but who will crush the head of the enemy. There is one who is coming who was born in an unlikely circumstance, but who would be continuing the line of Abraham. All those kind of images of the covenants of the Old Testament come together in the person of Christ. And he's exactly like us. You know, he woke up at 3 a.m. in the morning and he was, he was hungry. And he cried for his mommy. He worked with his dad in the shop. He grew up. He had not only had to eat, but he went through those years of puberty. He went through those years of trying to, to, to find, well, not find himself. That's the way we put it in our day and age. But he went through all the experiences that we have gone through in growing up, except without sin. Now, I've told you before, I feel sorry for his brothers and sisters. Because it's horrible being with a perfect brother or sister. I should know that. No, it's, um, but he, he goes through all these things. He goes through the rejection he probably felt. He went out. It doesn't say this, so this is maybe this is beyond uh, what's true. and Just maybe an illustration. Because he probably knew he was never going to marry. But what happened when he first saw a beautiful girl? And he goes, ooh. And then he goes, whoa. And then he goes, no. <laughs> That's not my calling. Because he had a sense of who he was. But what happened when he saw his mother and father heir? He, did he just go along with it? Or he said, Dad, I think you cut a corner on that table you just made. Not literally. Figuratively. I think you cut a corner. Maybe we ought to redo it. See? And what would we do if we saw our dad maybe cut a corner? Like, oh, that's okay. We'll get out here and we'll go play ball. No. He did everything perfectly without sin. Imagine that. And he did that for 33, maybe 34 years. Just like that. That is the Lord whom the creed talks about, whom we have gotten to know when you get to know Jesus. Then there's a last question. What benefits do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ 
And the answer is he is our mediator. Uh, Hebrews 2, 16, 17 talks about how he's our merciful high priest who makes intercession for us. He made propitiation for us. Remember I told you the theology in the Bible has, has vocabulary that you have to learn. Propitiation is one of those words. He appeased the wrath of his father on our behalf. He makes intercession on our behalf. Um, he is the one who is right now before the Father pleading on our behalf. He has given to us his innocence. When we were converted, when we declared our faith, we were justified. When we were justified, it, God declaring to us on the basis of my son, you have not sinned where you very well know that you have sinned. And it was not only for the sin you know about, but for every sin from the moment you were conceived until the moment you die was taken care of in, uh, by that declaration. It's his perfect holiness that allowed him to go to the cross and he covers, he overshadows all of your sin like the spirit overshadowed Mary, you are a Christian because the Spirit overshadowed you and changed your very nature, gave you a new nature. And Christ came into you, almost like his conception. And now, in one way, you are the incarnation of Christ. Not the physical incarnation, but a spiritual incarnation. He lives in you. And Jesus said, the Father and the Spirit live within you. You have the Godhead within you. Or as one person said, where you go, forego. There you are. That's all part of what you have. Let's apply this for a minute. I put down, know his ascension. That we have one before God who is just like us, except perfect and perfected except, or it should be just one like us, per perfect and perfected, except for one thing. You know, when Jesus is before the Father praying for you, he's in a human form. He did not jettison his body at the ascension. It cannot be jettisoned. For the rest of uh, eternity, for everlasting, the body and that the two natures will be together cannot be separated. So when he is before the Father who is a spirit and he's interceding on your behalf and he takes out, reaches out his hands and if he had a robe and it comes up here, what does the Father see? The scars. He looks down at his feet and there's a scar above the ankle. And if he didn't have anything on, he'd see a scar where he was pierced by the spear. And every time he intercedes for you, the father looks at that and said, taken care of. Taken care of. That brings us to the second. God is ready to forgive. We have been reconciled to God. That means we have been brought into his family. We are adopted children. He will not jettison us. 
The reason why you confess your sins is not to be reconciled with God as if you had to do it all over again. As if he had to accept you all over again. The reason you confess your sins is you are out of fellowship with him. And the confession of your sins is to bring you back into fellowship. Father, and just being able to say Father is a sign you're reconciled. Father, I have fallen short. I have missed the mark. I have sinned. Forgive me so that I, you and I can have the fellowship we had before. And then he looks at his son with the scars that will always be in heaven. And he says, you're forgiven. Why? It's already been paid for. It's already been paid for. You don't have to climb up stairs in Rome saying Hail Marys and the Our Fathers time after time again in order for God to forgive you. They're already paid for. That should create in you a desire to run to God when you have failed. Because you know his response. You're forgiven. It ought to, it ought to give you a, a, a desire to work boldly for him, knowing that even if you fail, he forgives you. You do not have to please him. He is already as pleased with you as he could possibly be, not because of you, but because of his son. He loves you as much as he's ever going to love you. He wants to be with you as much as he always wanted to be with you. There is no reason to shirk or to run from God, except what's up, up in here. That we don't think he loves us. Or we think, I have to love him more to make him accept me. No. He knows you don't love him at all. Except for Christ. Except for his son. That's our basic nature. In front of my Bible I have a, a pattern I use for my devotions. And part of it is a prayer for confession. I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I've done and by what I have left undone. I've not loved you with my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. I justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. For the sake of your son, have mercy on me. Forgive me, renew me, and lead me so that I may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. That is not the cry of a person who is coming for the first time to God. That's a cry of a person who is a son or could be a daughter before God. That's how much he loves you. And that's what, that's the implication and the application of the incarnation. The last one, because of that, we ought to be the most joyous people that you have ever seen. John has been dealing with uh, the affections between Paul and the Philippians. Sixteen times in that same letter, Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. But over and over, that letter is also considered the letter of joy. He rejoices. Why? Because of the incarnation. Because of Christ. 
because he's accepted before the Father. Sourpuss Christians is an oxymoron. Those who walk around like they're looking like they're sucking on lemons are bad witnesses in this sense. We should rejoice. People ask sometimes, how can you have fun all the time? Because I know God loves me. And I'm called to rejoice. doesn't matter whether I'm going through tough times or not. I can rejoice when my knee is killing me. I can rejoice when I've had troubles in previous churches. I can rejoice looking at your dead faces. <laughs> no. <laughs> because that is our delight in the Jesus who has incarnated himself for us. And that's what the creed is telling us. That little phrase, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a love that will not let us go. Thank you for a love that even before the foundation of the world, even before Adam fell and created sin and all the destruction of this world, you not only loved us, but you had planned to send your son and you engineered everything through covenants and nations and activities and examples and illustrations to the point would come when you, Son of God, would come take on the form of a human being, of a man, live among us, rejected by your own creation, and there you would give to us and purchase for us life and life eternal. Thank you. We're amazed at who you are. Help us never to lose that amazement and help us to learn how to live in the light of all that you've done. Now take and seal what has been said that's from you into our hearts and minds that it may come back when we need it the most. And Lord, help us then to go and to live for you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.